Well, my name is Steve Marshman, as Sean said, not Mr. Marshman, by the way. That made me feel really old, Sean. Thank you very much. <laughs> but my name is Steve, and I want to warn you that I'm going to be a little distracted tonight because my lovely wife is sitting right down here named Vicki. Vicki, raise your hand so everybody can stare at you. Uh, but I got a front row seat to her, and the reason why I'm going to keep looking at her is she's been gone for 16 days and just got back at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And I really missed her. And my daughter was home for these 16 days. And she could attest that I got grumpier and grumpier as the 16 days went by. So, you know, if this isn't going well, I'm just going to look over at Vicky and smile and say, this is awesome. Welcome back, honey. It's great to have you. We're dearly, dearly missed. So tonight is Acts 11. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Uh, but the first half of the chapter, which Jim just read probably sounds familiar to you if you were here last week because it's largely a a repeat. So if you missed last week, go get the podcast. Listen to what Jose says about it. We're going to cover a little bit of it, but I'm not going to go through the first half verse by verse. And then we'll go through the second half verse by verse. And the way we're going to tackle this entire chapter in one uh, evening is by putting up a question. And that question is a question I ask all the time. You ask all the time. Vicky and I together ask all the time. Missional communities ask all the time. The church leadership ask all the time. I heard it this week from a, a friend of mine. And the question is this, what do I do now? What do I do now? And this question comes up in all facets of our life. Obviously, some, some simple examples now with school being out is you know, if, you're, if you're just finishing high school, And you say, what do I do now for the summer? Or where do I go to college? Or maybe you finished college and you're looking for a job. This question of what do I do now comes up over and over and over. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're bad things. You know, some of the bad things that happen to us, we have breakups, boyfriend, girlfriend. Sometimes there's bad medical news and we have to ask, what do I do now? Sometimes it's good news. You know, you hopefully sometime you'll get a random call from a an attorney that says your long lost uncle died and he left you a whole pile of cash. And you say, well, what do I do now? If that's a challenge, by the way, come talk to me. I can help you out with that. Uh, it's really not that difficult. Um, uh, but today, Vicki was flying back from Jacksonville after a, a, a long trip. And what, the reason she was there is her dad, Jack, has been recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And to make matters worse while she was there on Father's Day of all. It was good that she was there for Father's Day to be with her father. Uh, But he tripped and he fell through this really old sliding glass door that wasn't safety glass. Completely cut himself up so bad. He got 39 stitches. When the EMTs got there, they said, it's lucky that somebody was here. He may have actually died because he was bleeding so profusely. And it still shakes up Vicky to even think about that. But now that her dad has Alzheimer's and needs some help, obviously, the, the family is asking, what do we do now? What do we do now? I think the answer to that question in the context of life, families, church, uh, there's a lot of answers from that in this story tonight, in the narrative of Acts 11 from the early church, because they have a lot of the same issues that we have. And we're going to answer these questions as we go through the text uh, but it's, these are not steps. These are not formulaic. They're not in any order. They're just a lot of things are happening in Acts chapter 11. And we're just going to tackle them one by one and co- try to answer this question, what do we do? Now, let's look back at Acts 11 verse 1 and just reread the first couple of verses because there's a lot of meat in this first part of this. The apostles 
and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are non-Jews, also had received the word of God. And in this context, the word of God is not the Bible. We often call the Bible the word of God. But in this context, the word of God is the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So the non-Jews, the Gentiles, heard the gospel. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcised believers criticized him. Now that phrase circumcised believers means Jewish believers because the Jews were circumcised. So the Jewish folks that who had converted and decided to follow Jesus, they were criticizing Peter, a fellow Jew. And look at the criticism in verse three. They said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uncircumcised men is Gentiles probably Greeks or something like that, and ate with them. The implication there is he violated the food laws. He probably had pork or something. And, you know, this is tough for us to understand because we're just like, well, what's the big deal? Um, but it was offensive, so they were upset about. It's kind of like if I wore skinny jeans tonight. <laughs> you guys would be offended. It's just, <laughs> it's just wrong on so many levels. You know, I, I don't know what age you're supposed to stop wearing skinny jeans. I just know I'm above it. I don't know what that age is. Uh, maybe my daughter will tell me after the message. But um, so this is absolutely appalling. It's actually way worse than wearing skinny jeans. They're eating food that God, Yahweh, said don't eat. And they're doing it with uncircumcised men. So what happens with this accusation? Why is it so offensive? I just want to understand a little bit about the whole bit that Jim read about the clean, unclean, and God is saying it's okay to eat these foods now. So what's going on is in the Old Testament under the Abrahamic covenant, the food laws were such that if you didn't follow them, you were unclean. But catch this, it did not mean you were a sinner. It just meant that you weren't clean and able to go into the temple. Why is that important? Because for the Jews, the presence of God was in the temple. Jews went to the temple to worship, to be in the presence of God. And what's happening here is a absolutely cataclysmic change because what has happened in this story is God is introducing and explaining how the new covenant works, which is all about Jesus. Last week when Jesus, uh, when Jose talked about Jesus, he said, Jesus changes everything. It was like Jesus speaking. It was pretty good. Uh, he said, Jesus changes everything and he does. And the new covenant changes, but catch this. When this was given, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Remember that in Matthew chapter five? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And I got to tell you, that it confused me for so many years. Like, well, it seems pretty abolished to me because you put a big King's X on it. But it's not really like that. If, since we're all in the computer generation, it's kind of like if you have a file that's got really good information in it, when you're done with it, you could hit my favorite key on the keyboard, which is the delete key, right? Just delete it, get rid of it, and it's gone. Or you could say, this is really important and it's completed. It's fulfilled, but I don't want to save it. So you put file, save, and save it to the archives. That's kind of what's going on here when Jesus says the old laws are not abolished because God keeps his promises, but they're completed. And the promise is completed by Jesus himself. 
How do we know what the Abrahamic covenant's all about? We have to go back to Genesis. We're not going to do that tonight. But let me just sum it up really, really quickly. God gives the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the covenant is circumcision. Circumcision was not a condition of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. So if you're circumcised, you're saying, I'm living under the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And the, and the simple, simple explanation of the Abrahamic covenant is that God chose one nation to bless all the nations. God is going to choose Israel, Abraham's nation, to bless all the nations forever and ever and ever, of every tongue, of every tribe. What the Jews missed, though, and this is the critical part of this, is that they thought the way God was going to bless all these nations is it was going to get them to be converts to Judaism. And that as they were blessed, they were going to have to become Jewish and follow all the laws all the food laws, on and on and on. And here we find out through this story, nope, that's not the way it works. The Gentiles don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to follow the Jewish laws. They can just enter into the kingdom. And we know that they got it, this local group got it. As we skip down to verse 18, it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God. Now, I want to, and, and so then even the Gentiles, God had granted repentance that leads to life. One quick other point on this, and then we'll move on. Paul talks about this, and I find it interesting if we just ask people, when does the gospel first explained? Most people will say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? But Paul actually in Galatians 3 says <clears throat> that the scriptures, the whole Bible, announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And then he quotes Genesis. Paul says the gospel was first announced to Abraham. And then here's a quote I'll put up on the screen, Galatians 3.29. This to me is just earth shattering for us today as we live in the, in the new covenant and look back to this wonderful promise of God. If you belong to Christ, so if you're here tonight and you're a follower of Jesus, if you belong to Christ, you are of Abraham's seed. You are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's the promise? I'm going to bless all peoples of all nations. So that's our heritage. That's the, we are the heirs of that. We inherit this wonderful promise from the most amazing faithful God ever to be ever thought of. And it's the real one true God. And we are actually part of Abraham's seed. We're grafted in to the nation. So the first answer to this question, what do I do now, in the context of Acts 11, is simply watch what God is doing. Watch what God is doing. The Jewish believers here in the first centuries got it. They watched what God was doing. They listened to Peter. They got the explanation. And then what did they watch? They watched the Holy Spirit come on the Gentiles and they got it and they, they saw what was happening. And that's, that's an important thing for us to do today. About two weeks ago, we had a prayer time after the service and we asked you to go to the back and pray with a bunch of leaders. And as one of the leaders here, I heard so many wonderful stories out of that. I heard one just this morning of a couple just two weeks ago that came and said, we are having a hard time getting pregnant. We can't get pregnant. Could you please pray that we would get pregnant? This morning, as they came into church, they went, guess what? We're pregnant. Now that's cool. That's a fast answer to prayer, by the way. Um, and I got to say, though, that that's not the only story. There's story after story after story. And some of you might go, well, that's just a coincidence. 
And maybe one of them is, maybe two of them are, but 10 or 20 of these stories. I mean, there's so many of these stories out of these times. They're not all coincidences. The other thing as we observe what, what's going on around here is what's going on with our missions efforts. And this, you know, this whole text is about the gospel going out outside of Jerusalem. Look what's going on around us with us sending Jose. He's actually not in Uganda. Uh, this morning he was in Grants Pass and tomorrow he goes to Uganda. Why did he go to Grants Pass? There's a big festival down there every year. Last year there was about 4,000 people there. I got a text from Jose this, this afternoon and I asked him, you know, what, what are the stats? You know, <laughs> and he says, I don't know yet, but there were thousands Many, many were baptized and many, many believed. So today that happened and we're watching that happen in Grand's Pass. Tomorrow he heads out to Uganda to join the team that left this morning. The Uganda team that we as a church sent as of about a dozen people left this morning. They'll be there about two weeks. I asked Jose last year on the Uganda trip, how many people uh, heard the gospel and how many do you think will hear the gospel this year in Uganda from this trip? And he hesitated and he thought a little bit. He goes, you know, I don't want to give a wrong number, but at least 20,000. <laughs> 20,000. I had no idea that this trip was that big. But thousands of people are going to hear the gospel of Jesus. And that's what's happening in our midst. The other thing that I see happening in our midst is a bunch of adoptions. You know, I'm from a generation where adoption is fairly rare. Now it seems like if you're 20-something and you're thinking about having kids, adoption's like right on the top of your list. That's wonderful. I think that's a God thing because you just don't go adopt a child without really thinking about it and praying about it. So we watch what God's doing. Let's move on in the text to the second half of the the text and skip down to verse 19. Many of your Bibles have a little title there that say the church in Antioch. And this is the first time um, we find out about Antioch. So there's, there's quite a bit happening here. Verse 19 of Acts 11. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and I love this last phrase, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. One of the answers to this question, what do we do, is simply follow God's lead. That's what happened here. I love the fact that the way Luke constructs this story is we get this new paradigm shift of the new covenant is available to the Gentiles. And the first thing the church does is they go to the Gentiles. Now, to help us understand that, we need a little bit of background on Antioch. Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was this third largest city in, uh, the, the, uh, in the world at that time behind Rome and Alexandria. It's a very rich, influential city. Main Street was about four miles long, paved in marble, marble columns. It was actually the first city with street lights. And there's about a half a million, you know, scholars estimate 500 to 600,000 people in this city. Very, very, very influential center of commerce, lots of stuff going on. Lots of gods were worshipped there. Zeus, Apollo, Daphne, you name it. Everything was going on there. And the Jewish community was dinky, about 5%. That's it. And that's where the Jerusalem church decides to go. 
and tell people about Jesus. I just think that's radical, absolutely radical. And just like then, they had to follow God's lead and say, the Gentiles get to hear the news. Right now, there's churches and organizations following God's lead, and this wild thing's happening in New York, July 11th. Uh, Luis Palau is going to do a festival in New York. A lot of stuff happened to lead up with that. A lot of people were following God's lead. And the churches in the city of New York are starting to prepare and, th- and thrive. I talked to some folks at a Luis Palau's organization this morning and found out that the event hasn't even happened yet. And it's like a couple of weeks, in July 11th. And they've already shared the gospel with 150,000 people at pre-events. And there's already been 4,000 decisions for Jesus. And the festival hasn't even happened yet. And Luis Palau is going to stand in Central Park and tell everybody about Jesus. I mean, that is just off the charts, really, really cool. What, what happens next in our story here? Verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. Well, yeah, you got a whole bunch of people getting converted. News travels fast. And they send Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So we find out about Barnabas here. Barnabas is an interesting character, nicknamed earlier in Acts, the son of of encouragement. He's known as an encourager, a good man, full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. And I think the answer to the question of what we do now when we look at the story of Barnabas is simply be faithful. Be faithful. I mean, Barnabas just didn't wake up one day as a good man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, right? He was faithful day after day after day. And he became known as an encourager. Many of you are encouragers, just natural encouragers. I Frankly, I wish I was like that. It's one of my very typical prayers when I'm asking God for things and say, God, make me a better encourager. I want to be like these people that are just naturally encouraged. I think Kenny Stone, our newest elder, had been a pastor here for about a year. He just seems to be that kind of guy. Every time I'm around him, I'm just encouraged. And many of you, when I'm around, I get encouraged. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. But it just doesn't happen. It's because Barnabas was faithful for many, many years. Also notice this. Who did the church send? They sent Barnabas. They didn't send some, you know, guy that just, doesn't know what he's doing. He's lazy. He's kind of faithful. He's about half full of the Holy Spirit. Let's send him, right? Because we can't afford to get, send our best folks. But they did. They sent their best folks. And who do we send to Grants Pass and Uganda? And I think I mentioned Jose's going to New York to be at this festival on the way back. We send our best. Jose's our best evangelist. And we send him. And Scott Ballard is being sent because he's proven faithful and he's gone to Uganda many, many times. And we send our best. We give up our best. The only problem with that is that leaves guys like me to talk to you when they're gone. So, you know, we just have to kind of deal with that. Sorry, but that's the way it goes down. Verse 25, we'll continue on. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. What's the first thing Barnabas does? He goes and gets help. And it's just not an easy, you know, call a guy up on the phone 
Let's not go to the next city over. Antioch's about 100 miles away. This was an effort to go get Saul. I'm going to read between the lines a little bit. Barnabas had a little bit of a history with Saul. We read that earlier. I think it was Acts chapter 4 or so. But he had a history, so he knows Saul. And he knows Saul would be good for the job. And I'm assuming he prayed about it because he's a man full of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit probably prompted him to go get Saul. Saul's going to be a big help on this. And we know that that actually happened. So Barnabas goes and gets help. That's a sign of wisdom, a real big sign of wisdom. Jose, when he set up this trip to Uganda, he didn't do it all by himself. First thing he did was he recruited Scott Ballard. It's a sign of wisdom. Go get help. Now, at this point in time, I want to just take a pause here from this message and chase a little bit of a rabbit trail because, frankly, as I was preparing this message, the Holy Spirit kept on putting on my mind relationships and marriages in particular. And I'm not really sure why, because it's really not directly in this passage. And it, didn't, it kept on happening. I didn't know what to do. So I called up Jose and said, Jose, I don't know what's going on, but every time I think about this message, I keep on getting this idea that we need to mention marriages. And he said, well, then go talk about marriages. You know, sometimes Jose is just beautifully simple, right? So, uh, but it's not just marriage, it's relationships. And what I'm, what I'm, what I'm going to here is the fact that I know in this room, because every time you have this many people gather together, there's some broken relationships right now, some severe hurt. There's some broken marriages right now, some severe hurt. There's some marriages that are on the rocks. First, I would applaud you for being here. That's a good thing because sitting under a worship time and a teaching of the scriptures is always good for your relationships, no matter where you're at. But I just want to say, get help. Wherever you are in your relationship difficulties, get help. Vicki and I have been married to be 32 years in August, and we've never had a day of trouble. <laughs> when we were first married, we were brand new Christians. I mean, clueless is, doesn't describe it. We didn't have any idea what was going on. But fortunately, some folks told us, to, you need to get, it actually didn't say go get help. They said, you need to work on your marriage because it needs work. So we actually, what we did, it doesn't mean it's good for you, but we looked up these uh, family life marriage conferences that go around the U.S. It's a part of Campus Crusades for Christ. And we went to one and it was super helpful. So we went to two more. It was the same info, but we're slow learners. But we, by after, three, after three of them, we started figuring out, okay, this is where we need to move. And could I just tell you, uh, particularly guys, but this is true for the ladies as well, is it, particularly in a marriage, but it's true in, relate, in any kind of relationships, don't try to fix your spouse. I, I tried that. <laughs> the ladies are laughing. It fails miserably, right? You can't fix your spouse. But you can fix your marriage. And the way you fix your marriage is you fix yourself. Because I had some stuff I had to deal with. So when I dealt with my stuff, my marriage started getting healthier. And then Vicky just kind of jumps in the boat and goes downstream with me. And she has to do the same thing. But I can't fix her. She can't fix me. So if that's for you tonight, I don't know why the Holy Spirit put that on my heart. But he did. Message delivered. And I could just 
encourage you, go get help, whether it be a friend, a missional community member, a pastor, professional counselor, a conference, a book, whatever it takes, go get help. You, this message, I mean, this chapter overall is about spreading the gospel. If you don't have a strong marriage, you cannot spread the gospel effectively. If you're in a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, it's all busted up and it's, that's all you think about, right? You won't be able to show Jesus very effectively. So enough of that. Now on for some prophecy, right? Because every good Bible story has some prophecy, right? Let's look at some prophecy. Verse 27. During, the time, uh, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus, a name that didn't really catch on, but it's in here. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And then Luke adds this parenthetical note. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And what I want to do to summarize this is answer the question, what do we do now with a simple statement of listen to God? Listen to God. And there's many ways we could listen to God. One of them is through the Bible. We're doing that tonight as we read the scriptures and we listen to God. And I hope you're spending time in the scriptures. Another one is the Holy Spirit. As believers, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And if you notice how many names the Holy Spirit has in scriptures, he's the counselor, he's the teacher, he's the guider, he's the helper, and on and on and on. The Holy Spirit is inside of us if we're following Jesus, and he's there for us to listen to. Third is prayer. I've discovered over my years of a Christian that prayer is not a monologue. It's not a one-way talk to God. It's a dialogue. It's a back and forth. I talk God talks. Now, I don't hear an audible voice, so don't freak out. You're like, I'm missing something. I don't hear God. No, I don't hear an audible voice, but you get promptings through your spirit about God, what God wants to say to you. And sometimes when we pray in a group, as a community, I learn things from others' prayers. And I think God's, I actually think God speaks to us through the prayers of others. I was in the prayer room last week. And by the way, just so you guys know, Every service, an hour before the service, so at 9 o'clock in the morning and at 5 o'clock in the evening, uh, you're free. Anybody could come and join us for prayer and pray just for each other and for the gathering. I would encourage you just, if you want to do something good for your church, just pick a month. Um, pick, pick a day a month, like the first or the second or third, and just say, that, mo- that day, that month, we're going to go pray. And it's a good and wonderful thing. But during that prayer time, Gail Williams, who's the wife of Jim, who read the scriptures, she prayed this, Lord, you love us so much that you don't let us stay where we are. And that was in the context of me asking prayer for my family and specifically for Vicki with dealing with her dad with this Alzheimer things. And Gail prayed this. And, and to me, it was what I needed at that time. You don't let us stay where we are. God's working with us. We're in partnership with him. He loves us. He's just going to leave us alone. He's going to deal with our life issues with us. So we listen to God by the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and lastly, prophecy. And prophecy is one of those things that some people get a little bit nervous about, right? When I say prophecy, it's kind of up there with healing and tongues, right? So, but when we say prophecy, I'm just for, for simplicity's sake, I want to explain it really, really simple. 
And there's a couple slides with definitions on, on, the, on the screen. But there's kind of two kinds of prophecy. There's capital P prophecy and little p prophecy. Capital P prophecy is the declaration of a truth directly by a supernatural source. We see this all over the Old Testament in the prophets, right? When they say, the Lord God said, and then they say what God said. Or we love the King James, thus saith the Lord. And this is what God says. It carries all the authority of God speaking himself. And many, many times it becomes part of the Holy Scriptures. Well, that's capital P prophecy. But little P P prophecy is what we see now and all over the New Testament. Little P prophecy is any spirit-empowered proclamation. So who could give that? Anybody that has a spirit-empowered proclamation. It's our belief at sunset that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit can speak a word of prophecy through you. You might even say that Gail's prayer, when I heard it, was a word of prophecy because I needed to hear that. And I believe it was spirit and, a spirit-empowered proclamation. A lot of times a person saying prophecy doesn't even know they're saying a prophecy. But the other person realizes That's from the Holy Spirit for this moment of time. Now, obviously, you could get dangerous with prophecy. God knows that. So he gives us some tests throughout all the scriptures. I'm not going to give you the passages right now, but just let me give you a quick three-step laundry list. If you hear prophecy, you want to evaluate it and test it. First is, is the prophet loyal to God? Is the prophet loyal to God? Second, is the prophecy consistent with prior revelation? God will never contradict himself. God is always consistent from the beginning to the end. And third is what the prophet describes or predicts accurate. And by the way, a lot of times when people hear prophecy, they think prediction of the future. Well, there's certainly a lot of prophecy that is prediction of the future. The prophecy in the passage tonight is a prediction of the future. A famine's coming. But a lot of times, prophecy is just a truth that the Spirit gives us through another person for right now. So don't think all prophecy is of the future. Well, in the passage, Luke helps us out. He says, this happened during the reign of Claudius. So Agabus got it right. So this is a true word of prophecy. And by the way, if you're a little skeptical about the Bible and its accuracy, uh, historians tell us that Claudia was a Caesar of Rome from 41 to 54 AD. And there was multiple famines in multiple areas of the Roman Empire during his reign. So it actually did happen. I think, this is me personally saying something about prophecy, my personal opinion, that the most important thing about prophecy when we discuss it in the church is that it doesn't create division. I would love to not see any division in any church in the U.S. over prophecy. Unfortunately, there is. Some churches get in a battle and they get in all these hissy fits about it. Let's not do that here. Some churches believe that prophecy doesn't exist anymore. As I said, if you believe that, fine, you're welcome to worship here. But just so you know, at sunset, we do believe prophecy exists today, but we're going to be careful to test it. So moving on, Agabus says there's going to be a famine. What's the question they ask? What do we do now? Right? Well, let's read the answer. Verse 29. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea because a famine was coming. Verse 30, they did this, or this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. 
So another answer to the question of what do we do now is simply help others, help other people. You find out about a need, go help. That's what we do now. I like the fact that in this passage, this was a conscious decision to help. They just didn't whip out their checkbook or whatever and start helping. They thought about it. Disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help. We thought about it. I also love the fact that they're unnamed. I love the fact that here at Sunset, we have so many people helping in so many different ways. Most of them that will never be known by the leadership team or the rest of us, but they're helping. And it's not about fame and notoriety. It's about praising Jesus and helping uh, other people experience life in Jesus and become what Jesus wants to have. The other thing that's interesting about this passage is this is the Gentiles helping the Jews. Very, very early on, right, the Jews proclaim the gospel to, uh, to the Gentiles and the Gentiles say, we get it. We want to follow Jesus. And shortly after that, the Gentiles are helping the Jews. That's evidence that they really, really got it. 